I would say constantly be pushing for what is the edge of what is being worked on. Because things at the edge, by definition, people are still trying to figure out what that is and how to do it. The more you can be comfortable with seeking out edge knowledge and edge work, that is sort of frontier level work where you have to figure it out. The willingness to engage on the edge of knowledge and work will always return high dividends if you're willing to do it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our next guest is a lawyer who's been writing and using social to connect lawyers before it was even a thing for the legal industry. He is the chief marketing officer at Case Status, the leading mobile client portal and messaging platform for law firms. He is also the founder of Lawyer Smack, a large and thriving private community of attorneys with 15,000 plus messages exchanged weekly. This is a lawyer who's been deeply dedicated to authentic community building within the legal community for decades. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Keith Lee. Keith, welcome. Hi, Seagal. Thanks for having me. I'm thankful to be here. I don't know how many guests I feel like you know well, but we've known each other for a few years now. Absolutely. And the ones that I do know really well, it's particularly exciting because I get to dig even deeper in places that I might not otherwise have been able to do. Are you ready for this? I'm excited. Let's do it. All right. Well, before we start, I've actually been asking each guest to share a moment of gratitude. So what would you say your favorite moment today has been? Today? Today, yeah. Wow, today. One of my most grateful, because yeah, we're recording early in the morning, so it's not even halfway through the day yet. If I'm going to say I was grateful for something that happened today, our executive team met, our executive team weekly meetings happen to be on Thursday mornings, but um, we're just in a good groove and everybody was having, you know, you've been an executive, obviously, at Lawline for a long time, and sometimes you have good exec team meetings and sometimes you have bad exec team meetings. And when you have a good one and everyone's like on the same page and on the same wavelength and business is doing good, it's just a good feeling. Everybody is pointed in the same direction. And I had one of those meetings today. So that's what I'm probably grateful for so far. Awesome. Yeah, I totally know what you're talking about. How do you center everyone to that place? Yeah, that can be really hard. Certainly patience is the number one thing. I always try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. And I think we have that really well in our team. Like assume good intentions, even if you're butting heads on an issue like pause, be patient. I always like the acronym WAIT, like W-A-I-T, which is why am I talking? So I use that a lot. I'm like, wait, why am I talking? I always feel that serves me really well. Maybe that's going back into being a lawyer and like think about being in a depot and you get trained really well to ask a question and people answer. And then you just wait and let it be awkward because people tend to fill the silence. So even in a team environment, being mindful of, you know, Let this other person talk, let them keep talking, let them talk it out. And that can usually lead to a lot of things because hopefully they'll get to the core issue of what they're about and then you can make progress. It's so easy for us to see that awkward silence and want to jump in and remedy that. But there is so much value that you can gain from giving other people the space and the time to talk and to really think out the core issues that they have. That's a great tool. I like that very much. Wonderful. Well, Keith. You've been actually really connected, dedicated to community building in the legal community for a long time. Tell me, 
When did that start? And what do you think was the catalyst for that? I think there's probably a couple things. One, you know, when I was graduating law school, which now seems like an awkwardly long time ago, mentally, it feels like yesterday. But when I say it aloud to people and you're around like new lawyers, they're like, ooh, that was a while ago. It's like, <laughs> wait a minute, what? <laughs> um, but when I did, you know, blogs were very much like a thing still, like really big in a way that they've, they've sort of been eaten by social media in a way. And it's not that there's blogs aren't around, but they've had their heyday and it's in the past. And so I was in law school and I was looking online and I was like, oh man, there's all these really cool lawyers out there and they've got all these websites and they're talking about their practices and what they do. It was really exciting. I was like, wow. And I started trying to engage as a law student and that can be good or bad as a law student trying to engage with lawyers. It's got to be very carefully navigated. But I did. I started doing it and that finally inspired me to start my own website. Also, at the same time, I'd be remiss to not give credit. I also read, you know, Ari Kaplan. Yes. Love him. Love Ari so great. At the same time, Ari had a book just come out called The Opportunity Maker. And it was all about don't wait for opportunities, make opportunities happen in your life. And I remember being in law school, looking at blogs having read Ari's book and now Ari's like a friend. And I was like, man, I just should just do this. So I started Associates Mind, which is my blog that I started like a dozen years ago. And I was probably the right place, the right time. I think I was consistent. There were a lot of people who started stuff back then, but they all do it for a few months, then stop. And I just kept plugging away the desire to, to join that. There was a burgeoning pre law, Twitter, social media, everything else. The original sort of core social media for lawyers was this network of legal bloggers. That was my initial foray into that for the legal industry. That's awesome. And you called it the Associates Mind. What were some of the topics that you were really focusing on? Associates Mind is a play on the Japanese Shoshin, beginner's mind, right? And that's the whole phrase of that is you should have a beginner's mind for your whole life because in an expert's mind, the ways forward are small, but in a beginner, because you don't know better, you think there's lots of ways forward. So it's play on that to be like, oh, as an associate, I need to have a mind that's open to new ideas and trying new things. And so a lot of the blogs back then, you get people who were criminal defense lawyers writing about criminal defense or an IP lawyer writing about trademark stuff. I was in law school. I couldn't write about a practice area that would have been so fake. Everyone would have read through it. So I really focused on, Hey, I'll just be transparent and authentic. I'm a new lawyer. I'm trying to figure this out. What does it mean to be a good lawyer? What does it mean to build relationships? What does it mean to be a better writer? What does it mean to be a better communicator? And it was really all the process of like, how do I want to grow into this role as an attorney? I've never been an attorney in my life. I'm going through this period to get me ready for it, which we all know going to law school actually doesn't get you ready to be a lawyer. That's the biggest lie. <laughs> and yeah, so I was just like, here I am, warts and all, here's what I got. And I'm trying to figure this out. And I think that's what resonated with people. That's why the, you know, the ABA came to me and asked me to write the book for them about transitioning from law school to being a lawyer because I wasn't pulling punches. I was like, wow, this is crazy. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm just trying to figure it out, which, you know, we all are. I just, I was more <laughs> forthright about it, I guess, than most people. That's really interesting because I think now we're seeing this, or at least I'm seeing this larger wave of people being more vulnerable and more authentic about their experiences. There was this time in online and on social media where perfection and this like beautiful image were really important, especially for lawyers where being professional was like 
extremely important and you couldn't really show your emotions or your vulnerabilities, or your weaknesses. So I think that's really cool that you from the beginning were like, this is who I am. I am struggling. I want to talk about that. I want to normalize that. And that was way before like this kind of new wave of vulnerability was happening. What do you think? Because that's a scary thing to do. What do you think allowed you to be that way? Yeah, there's a fine line to walk there about what's too much because, yeah, certainly being a lawyer, being confident is a big part of the job. The clients need to believe that you can do what you can do. They want to hire people who are competent at their jobs. And so, you know, there's concern if you're too vulnerable, too open, you're exposing yourself in a way that clients and other lawyers might be like, eh, I don't, I don't know about that. You know, that's too much. There's no magical answer. It's the typical law school answer. It depends. I was very situational. I'm inclined to just be a very open person. I'm just very like, take it or leave it. I was fortunate through a variety of experiences in my life that I discovered pretty early on. It's exhausting to constantly like shift and be. We all wear masks in our life. There's a mask you put on for your family. There's a mask you put on at work. There's a mask you put on with old friends. There's a mask you put on with new friends. Maybe who you are underneath stays the same, but you show different parts of yourself to different groups of people. That's very situational. Look, you're never getting away from that. But I tried to be me as much as I can in all situations, just because I'm afraid it's easier. Yeah. You know, and maybe it does alienate some people. You know, I'm not everybody's cup of tea. I'm not going to please everybody. I'm probably a little rough around the edges for some folks, but say la vie. And there's plenty of people in the world to be friends with. So I'm good on that front. I'm only starting to realize that now. Like, yes, I'm not everyone's cup of tea. And that's okay. And that's okay. I mean, it's really okay. And you're able to attract the people that you are that cup of tea because those are the people that you want to be around anyway. If you're wearing exactly. the mask and attracting the people that are not your cup of tea, then what are you doing? What's the point of all of it? So I really love that. And on that note, when we first met, you were just so welcoming and just straight up helpful from the outset. Where do you think that comes from? And how do you think that informs the work that you do? Hmm. Well, in my experience, when I interact with people after I leave them, I fall into three categories. Either I feel like a higher energy, like, oh, engaging with that person left me with a better feeling than I actually even started, which is pretty rare, but you know, you get it. Then more often than not, there's a neutral, which is fine. You interact with people and that's day to day. And then there's a like, oh, being around that person was a lot of effort for me to interact with that person. And, um, I want to be in that number one category. So if I'm engaging with people, I always want to try and leave that sort of like positive energy impression because I know I find that invigorating. So that's probably part one. Part two is I'm a big believer and there's a lot of different terms for it. The one I've just landed on is trust equity. Just like you buy a house, you build up equity in the home and eventually you can take some of the money out to use different things. I believe in relationships. There's such a thing as trust equity, particularly when you meet someone new and it's a kind of early stages of a relationship, you've really got to invest in that trust equity. You've got to give, 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 give. It's the Vaynerchuk, jab, 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 hook type of situations. Like you've got to invest first. You've got to show that you are going to be a good actor in the relationship. Hey, I'm going to give a lot as I interact with you. And not because I'm like, oh, I know later I'm going to take something out of it, but it's just like. Hey, I, I'm here to give. I'm not that category three person who's going to suck energy away from you. I want to be a category one energy giving person to other people. That's awesome. So what category was I in when you had me? 
<laughs> you are a category one person. Yeah. Style. I mean, would you actually say anything different on my own podcast? <laughs> uh, probably not. But that's also a genuine answer. Like I always enjoy us spending time together. I agree. Me too. I had to put you on the spot there for a second. <laughs> All right. So you start Associates Mind. You're writing. You're really being vulnerable. Take me through briefly. What did that journey look like until you got to Lawyer Smack? Yeah. So I was practicing a couple of different firms, one right out the gate where I did insurance defense. Love those guys that I'd worked with. Don't care for the practice area. <laughs> um, it's not great. Mostly just the billing practices and insurance companies. It's such a nightmare. It was rough. Then uh, own practice with a couple of guys I went to law school with. Like I mentioned, I wrote a book for the ABA during that time. I started writing for Above the Law back when David and Ellie were still there. And I was doing that for a while. And then I stopped writing for Above the Law and blogs had faded and receded into the background and social was this thing. And I started doing some consulting work actually to legal tech companies on how to market to the industry. So I was practicing law, doing some consulting work. But one thing I realized is, you know, social media was maybe not the authenticity level of vulnerability you're talking about, which is a pretty recent thing. So we're talking four or five years ago. And I think Lawyer Smack might be four or five years old. I'd missed that camaraderie from the earlier blogs era had not actually translated well to social media because a lot of people on social media present very farcical curated versions of themselves or they're just anonymous you know and they're like i'm law dude 420 and let me tell you about rules of civil procedure and it's like law dude 420 i have no idea who you actually are like well we know a little bit about what he's about <laughs> we know a little bit about law dude 420 <laughs> But you know, not if he's actually an attorney or, or right. even if he is an attorney, he might be some transactional guy and he might not know a damn thing about the rules of civil procedure. So I kind of looked around and uh, there was this new thing called Slack, which was new. And everyone was like, man, this thing Slack is going to take over the world. I looked at it for a little bit, but I just kind of decided, I was like, you know what? All right, I'm going to start a community. I knew what I wanted. I was looking for a place for lawyers to come that was private, not public. That's again, another problem with social media. It's like... Here, everybody can see all our conversations and lawyers want to have private conversations with other lawyers because they want to talk shop on some level and they're never going to do that publicly. They're never going to do that publicly. So creating a space for that and putting people into, you know, real name, real picture, got to prove you're a lawyer. There's all these requirements. And, uh, and initially it was a free, but then eventually it became a paid community, just like any other bar association. And it's like the more barriers I put in the way, the better the community got, right? Filtering out the people who weren't willing to commit to, you know, being who they really were, put some skin in the game, some nominal fee realistically, but put some skin in the game that, all right, I'm going to make a commitment to this. That was kind of just this weird, just kind of slow journey into something that does 10, 15,000 messages a week. There's hundreds of lawyers in there. It has its own life. I could go away tomorrow and it would just keep on trucking. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You gave me a sneak peek into that. And I remember just being in absolute awe at the conversations that were happening, the camaraderie that was happening, the real life in-person get-togethers they were doing. Obviously, a lot of that was before the pandemic, but it was just incredible. And then the increasing amount of channels that really focused on various things that people wanted to talk about, I thought was super cool. Now, were those things that you created or were they self-created by the members? I certainly seeded a lot of the channels initially. I said, oh, we're going to have a real property channel. We're going to have appeals, this, that, or the other. But then over time, I, I let people do what they do. And now there are far more 
user-created channels than I ever put together. I particularly loved the Women Lawyers channel, and then I also loved the gaming channels mm-hmm. where we talked about various video games that we would play, and and then all of mm-hmm. the IP and other types of issues around video games would come up. It was one of my favorite channels. Yeah. I know you said that you were really hungry to have that interaction again. What do you think it is? Because you could have just joined, let's say, another bar association. Like, what do you think it was that really compelled you to be like, no, I need to build this myself? Well... Sagal, why don't you tell me about your experiences with Bar Association? I don't have much, to be honest with you. I got actually a free membership to the New York Bar Association when I first got admitted as an attorney, and I never used it. Yeah, not hating on Bar Associations. I actually think Bar Associations are really valuable to members and particularly local. Like the more local the Bar Association, probably the more valuable it is. The ABA is like this thing in Chicago somewhere that most people never even interact with. But they serve their own role. And my like, ooh, incredible insight is that like this social media thing, networking on the internet, that could be a thing. And bar associations just aren't equipped to do that. So it just became apparent that the only way this was going to happen is if I do it or somebody else does it. And so I, I had the time and inclination. So I just, I made it happen. And and I think maybe bar associations will come around one day, but um, it, it might take a while. Yeah. So it seems like you really saw a need in the market. And clearly people are enjoying it because there's so many people using it. But you also recently became the chief marketing officer at Case Status. And so I would love to hear a little bit about that journey and what you do there. Sure. Case Status was a consulting client that I was working with for a while. And uh, eventually we kind of got to a spot right before the pandemic, actually, like weird timing of the world that they said, hey, we'd really like you to become a permanent member of the team. You're a lawyer who understands getting a lawyer's attention and is good at communicating with attorneys. We'd really like for you to come in and be the chief marketing officer. I thought about it a lot because I'd never actually come inside a company before to do this type of work. And the product is great. I mean, case status solves a real problem for law firms. And it was something that I felt like I could really get behind and speak about, again, with real authenticity that, hey, this is not just another case management system at the ABA Tech Show. There are already a half dozen really well entrenched, strong players in the case management system. Every year, a dozen more pop up. And I'm like, this is a solved problem. And case status had done that. So um, that retracted me there. And yeah, so things are going good. Amazing. Well, let's go to a little bit of a rapid fire question because we're actually wrapping up in a little bit. Okay. What does it mean to be a lawyer who leads? Authenticity, transparency, and inspiration. And I feel like I've talked a fair bit already about being authentic and transparent to people because I very much believe in that. You know, the last one, inspiration, is not something I feel like I consciously do or even seek to do, like, I'm going to go out and inspire people. That's weird. I don't, I don't like that. People will sometimes like, oh, Keith, you're such a thought leader. And I'm like, I'm not comfortable leading my own thoughts, let alone (laughs) other people's like time out on that. Like, I'm not, I'm not here for that. But as a leader, even as a, maybe sometimes a bit of a reluctant leader in that regard, you know, inspiration is just people believing in what you're doing. Right. And again, if you're authentic and transparent and recognize You're not everyone's cup of tea and being okay with that saying, look, here's who I am. This is what I'm about. This is what I'm not about. I don't like any of that stuff. What is some of that stuff? I'm curious. There are so many people who are like so puffed up and again, present this farcical nature of who they are. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite comics is from like 
10, 15 years ago. It's like two, there's like you on Facebook and it's like a guy on a skateboard doing an ollie with like a guitar and like, he's just awesome. And then it's like you in real life and he's like eating Cheetos on the sofa, you know? And I think still to this day, a lot of people present themselves to be this one thing in a way. I just, man, I really don't like that. I'd rather just people be who they are. Like, it's cool. Just don't be, don't be scared about that. Mm -hmm. And there's, particularly in any industry, but you know, there's advisor, coach, group, you know, there's all cottage industry of people that are not actually what they say they are. And it's like, I don't have time for that. I see people who are in leadership roles in different areas, lawyers or not. And when they conduct themselves with real authenticity and transparency about who they are, that's inspiring. It's like, yeah, look at that person's in this important role and they're not scared of who they are. I mean, the lawyer smack community is that way in a big way. There's lawyers and they're all types of firms, small, big corporations, little fortune 500, and they all are very transparent with who they are and lead very different lives and do different things. I find that inspiring. I mean, I find the community inspiring. So it's really hard when you're looking to a leader and seeing this perfection or this kind of facade of perfection, like it's not an achievable thing. Mm -mm. And so when you actually see like a real human being making mistakes, being a little bit, you know, messy, but still able to make an impact and move the needle, that is an inspiring thing because it looks real and it's, it seems achievable, right? Right. So I, I agree with you. I think that that's such an important part of leadership as well. If there was one thing that you could improve about the legal industry, what would it be? Oh, wow. I have a laundry list of things. <laughs> um I think if I was going to have one thing to change, going to have the largest systemic foundational impact is I would radically change law school. Law school is stuck in the 1950s still. And even everything they say about, oh, we're getting more modern, this, that, and whatever, it's mostly lip service. I mean, it really is. And, you know, there's a real incentive alignment problem there. Like the schools are incentivized to just get more bodies in the door. Because law schools are profit centers for colleges. They don't have labs. They don't need tons of, you know, computers. They don't need lots of space. It's like you need a library, some professors, students, and laptops, and you're off to the races. And you can charge people $100,000 a year around that to go to law school for three years. Great money. So the schools love it. And professors get paid really well, but they're incentivized to produce research, not actually equip their students to be successful attorneys. And so there's all like misalignment and the third year of law school is largely BS, frankly. It's like, oh, you know, the law and the world of Harry Potter or something. And it's no offense to Harry Potter. I've read the books. They're fun. But like, you know, the third year of law school should be articling like they, they do it in Canada or it should be uh, you have to do clinics for a half of the year. You know, walk across campus. There's a place called the business school and they know how businesses work. Law professors don't need to reinvent the wheel. No, send the students over to the business school, make them take a couple semesters of accounting and stuff like that. And they'll be way more equipped to come out and interface with clients in the business world, the business of running a law firm. So for me, I, I would change legal education. I would nuke it and probably restart uh, and really rethink it from the ground up, which is never going to happen. But I think that's, we got to start there. If we don't start really changing how future lawyers are educated, then we're just going to be stuck in the same cycle again and again and again.
Yeah, it's so interesting. I was at a conference. This is many years ago now. I would say nine years ago. I was at a conference and the majority of people in the audience were either from law firms or training organizations for lawyers of any type or law schools. So you have these like three groups of people. And the speaker asked, who do you think is responsible for teaching a lawyer the practical aspects of law? And I remember laughing to myself because every single person that answered the question said it was some other organization other than themselves. So, uh, for example, the law school said it was the law firm. You know, the law firm said it was the law school or, you know, the CLE. Actually, there was one CLE person that was like, no, it's kind of our job. <laughs> so there was one person that kind of took it on for themselves. But in general, it looked like no one actually thought they were accountable for teaching the practical aspects. That was such a powerful moment for me because I was like, wow, no one wants to do this. And yet everybody agrees that it needs to happen. Yep. It's a real problem. So what is something that you think people seem to misunderstand about the work that you do? Yeah. Like you tell lawyers, like I'm an executive, I'm chief marketing officer for a legal tech software platform. You're like, oh God, that must be so easy. You must just post on social media all day. And it's like, Again, that shows me how little you actually know how businesses function. You get so entrenched in like being a lawyer and doing the legal work that you don't understand the vast array of things, the multitude of projects, you know, managing budgets, strategic development of campaigns, working with other departments, supporting other, I mean, it's like, it's a lot of work. And so I'd say that's probably the big misconception is that lawyers are a little stuck in their own world and don't recognize how things work at times. I think the chief marketing officer and marketing roles in general have always been a difficult role. They're very, very stressful. It's not easy to get people to make a decision about a product and spend money on you. I mean, it's just very difficult to do. And then you add the extra layer of the amount of content, the amount of messaging, the amount of communication that is now happening online. If you don't have somebody that's really thinking deeply, continuously, and in an innovative way about how to get your message through the noise, then you are not going to be heard. People are not going to know about you. They're not going to want to interact with you, communicate with you, or have a relationship with you, which is really, I think, the biggest thing within the industry. So agreed. Last question. Actually, two more questions. What is a piece of practical advice that you would give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in the law that are looking to follow your lead. No one should try and follow my career path. Like it was so like this way, that way, up, down, backwards, forwards, all over the place to end up where I am. But I would say is to constantly be pushing for what is the edge of knowledge or the edge of what is being done or worked on. Because things at the edge, by definition, people are still trying to figure out what that is and what does that mean and how to do it. There's no course you can take on it, right? If there's a piece of work or something that you do that can be commoditized and trained and taught, well, then eventually it is going to be commoditized, trained and taught and that can get put into a box and people go to school for it and eventually computers are going to be doing it. The more you can be comfortable with seeking out edge knowledge and edge work that is sort of frontier level work where you sort of have to figure it out. Like there is no, here's the playbook for starting, you know, one of the largest online legal communities for lawyer. Well, no, none existed. The willingness to engage on the edge of knowledge and work, I think will always return high dividends if you're willing to do it. Excellent. So final question. What is your favorite self-care practice? I need alone time. I am an only child. So I grew up with a lot of alone time and 
everyone assumes, oh, you're such an extrovert. You're so out there with people and whatever. Man, I'm a high functioning introvert, right? After the last week of the tech show, I got home late Saturday. My wife and son know me well enough now, like Sunday. I was like, cool. No, I can't talk to anybody. I need to be by myself and not interact with anybody for a while. I need the time to decompress in a big way. Obviously not that I didn't also immediately go spend plenty of time with my family, but I really need just time by myself. I need to be able to read a book, exercise. My Peloton's like right on the other side of the computer. Do something that I can be alone with my thoughts. So I am also a high functioning introvert. I also people think I'm so extroverted, but I am the same exact way as you in that I need that time afterwards to decompress. Even within conferences, a lot of the times after a full day of sessions or a full day of networking before, let's say, the dinner rush begins, even if I miss a session, I have to take like from three to six or three to seven of just me time to just recharge the batteries before I go out again. So I think that's great advice for people who perhaps might be feeling a little overwhelmed when they go to these things and not understanding why that maybe giving yourself a little bit of that space and permission to take some time away and recharge a little bit before heading back in there. 100%. Awesome. Well, Keith, I want to thank you so much for being here. If someone wants to chat with you about the work that you do, how can they connect with you? I mean, fastest way I'm on Twitter. I'm at associatesmind.com or you can just email me klee at kstatus.com. I'll read the email. I'm happy to chat with anybody about all topics. Thank you, leaders and future leaders for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers Who Lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.